get ready for adventure. Islands of it, man. From the studios to Volcano Bay, this is the Universal Joint, a podcast devoted to all things universal with your host, Jim Hill and Dustin Foods. Welcome to the Universal Joint podcast. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Dustin Fuse and I are recording this on Friday, April 12th, a cold, wet day for April. It'd be nice to be sitting around a big roaring fire right now, Dustin, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it snowed up here yesterday. So uh, any <sighs> any way that we can talk about, you know, fire and, I don't know, barbecue and good eats, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of that. What Dustin is alluding to is just earlier this week, it's not that we didn't know this was coming because since Emeralds closed in Universal City Walk in Orlando back in July of last year, we knew there was none of the restaurant coming. And in fact, Dustin, I think you were the one who dug up the trademark for Big Fire, right? That's that's the name of the, this new restaurant? Yeah, we, we've known that Big Fire was going to be a name that Universal was going to use. And I think as soon as we figured the location and it just kind mm-hmm. of worked out. So yeah, Big Fire is coming to Universal Orlando Resort. Reading from the official press release, this summer Universal Orlando will debut its next original concept in dining, Big Fire, an all-new full-service restaurant that will serve a specialty menu and a highly themed environment directly to the guests again at Universal City Walk and take open fire cooking to a whole new level. It's really a definite step away from what Emerald had for a look. They describe here, you come in off of City Walk and you're suddenly in a grand lakeside lodge and cozy fireplace and... The cozy fireplace to cast iron and wood design mm. elements and nostalgic camp lanterns and oversized plaid blankets. This sounds mm-hmm. like almost like going to Wilderness Lodge or in uh, in your neck of the woods. Isn't this back-to-back with Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville or... Yeah, it's, it's basically going to uh, be a very interesting uh, corner for mm-hmm. dining. But then again, we've we've known from the name that it's going to be this type of a concept. It's nice to see it in in writing. And I'm very intrigued with the styles and the flavors that they're going to be bringing out. They say here that for the first time at Universal Orlando, each dish will be expertly paired with a perfect type of wood to bring out the smoky goodness in each bite. So from cherry wood to pecan wood and offering things like a bison burger, Mm -hmm. cocoa rubbed hop sirloin and delectable freshwater trout. I guess with the wood element, that does make this that much more different than, say, the NBC grill just down the way or the NBC sports grill, excuse me. They have that huge open kitchen area where you can watch your meat being grilled. I love the conceit of the the big open fire and and the Lakeside Lodge and all that sort of thing. But from the times I've been in Emerald, I wonder if it's really big enough to pull off this idea. I mean, I'm I'm talking about the physical space of the building. Yeah, because with something like this, you have to escape reality. You have to Mm -hmm. go and be transported to this environment where you're going to want to eat trout and bison Mm -hmm. burgers and that kind of thing. But with City Walk, it's all about creating a flavor palette. And with Mm -hmm. the number of restaurants that are already there, Mm -hmm. we were wondering what type of of cuisine they were going to be bringing in. So I'm actually really interested to see what the end result will be. 
and how many times the menus will fluctuate with the seasons and kind of just taking into account the the walkthrough traffic at, at City Walk. I also want to see what the drink menus are going to end up being because stopping into Big Fire before or after mm-hmm. your day in the parks is going to be great. Perfect location. This is reportedly opening this summer at uh, Universal City Walk. On the other hand, if we're looking ahead to 2020, another project that we've been tracking because the Globe Theater at Universal Studios Hollywood, uh, there on the upper lot, uh, closed in July of last year, and they've been gutting the building and obviously getting something ready to put in there. And I, I think, again, Dustin, you had come across the secret life of pets was the ip that they were looking at to bring in there but just this past week we've had the announcement of the visual announcement of the attraction secret life of pets off the leash and supposedly going to not only draw its inspiration from the uh hit 2016 illuminations entertainment film but also the secret life of pets Two, which is coming out in June of this year. Mm-hmm. I tend to read the press releases and that sort of thing fairly closely. And there was one thing about this ride that really kind of caught my eye. And, and it's this sentence. It's the, the innovative adventure will blend live dimensional and animated characters with hyper-realistic media as guests zip along a track aboard ride vehicles through a bustling New York City street. And it's like, live well yeah because the next part of that sentence is towards the pet adoption event and the ultimate happy Mm. ending forever homes so what they're saying is that we actually get to adopt pets on our way out of the park (laughs) happen i tried this is supposed to be opening summer of 2020 because it's being built right across the street from despicable me minion mayhem and the super silly Funland attraction we're getting sort of an Illuminations Entertainment land up out of the ground back here. Mm-hmm. You've got your DreamWorks Theater where the Kung Fu Panda show is being shown. And just kind of interesting how Universal, after the fact, is trying to sort of set up lands. Going forward, it'll, it'll just be kind of interesting to see whether or not we see what other Illuminations-inspired entertainments or shops or restaurants we see you know, sort of jump up in the same, you know, side of the upper lot. No, that, that's it. That's actually a really great point, because when you look at some of the islands over in Isles of Adventure, you have space. So there are a lot of these Harry Potter, Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you walk in and you have space to do not just an attraction, but also multiple mm-hmm. shops and restaurants where a lot of times you'll kind of put an attraction in the middle of a park. Say, for example, mm-hmm. the... Um, Transformers experience, where mm-hmm. there is no room to actually put their shops or their restaurants or their extra theming. You're not actually walking into an immersive land. You're basically just seeing one show building across from the next. And I think Universal is realizing that with immersive experiences comes higher profits because people are their guests are able to stay within that mindset for a longer time and get excited to take that home with them. Interesting point. And and we'll be getting to some of the stuff that Universal is is going to be doing. Uh, some some pretty next-gen stuff uh, with Fantastic Worlds in a moment. But first, back to Universal uh, Hollywood. We just last night, they did that hard ticket premiere 
of the Dark Arts at uh, Hogwarts Castle, their new projection show mm-hmm. for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And they did so much publicity out ahead of this, talking about the Death Eaters, the Dementors, you know, all that. And what I love is that Universal managed to keep a card up its sleeve. And have you heard about this use of drones to make the Patronus? We talked about the drone potential uh, a couple of shows ago when we were comparing Universal's ideas with what happened at Disney Springs a few years ago with their holiday show. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I will tell people, though, is as soon as one of these uh, these showings pops up and you get an advanced viewing at a hard ticket event, everyone will put it on YouTube and they'll be like, oh, this is incredible. Watch this. It's incredible because they were there. Mm -hmm. And I think the YouTube mentality is it takes away from the actual experience. I watched it before recording and it was great. It looked great. The music was great. But Mm -hmm. I think you have to be there to really take in to be in that environment. You look back to the Starbright Holiday Show that Disney did at Disney Springs back in 2016 to pull off the dove and the christmas tree and all of that that was 300 drones Mm -hmm. and you then have to think so you need 300 places to charge up your drones (laughs) and you need how many technicians to service the drones and all that so and they need a landing area (laughs) well no that's it exactly and and universal studios hollywood it's not florida they're not great expanses of empty land the Starbright Holiday Show, they did that out over Lake Buena Vista because they didn't want any of these things falling out of the sky. Uh, for me, that's immediately when I was looking at the footage of the Patronus, it's like, okay, where are they doing this? Because mm-hmm. again, the people inside the Wizarding World can clearly see this thing and, you know, from the noise they were making and all that. But again, it's all kind of a forced perspective thing. The couple of phone calls that I made is that the stag figure comes together, I guess, over the load-on-load station for the tram? Oh, really? But the thing is that they have to do this at the end of the day. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it's being presented. Well, it has to be presented after dark because it's a projection show. Yep. Remember, the tram basically shuts down after dark, except, of course, during the summer months. When they used to do that thing like, you know, the tram tour, the nighttime tram tour with we had rolled by Maryland's uh, trailer and see Doc and Marty out in uh, Courthouse Square and all that. And it's suddenly the schedule and the times that it's being presented make a whole lot more sense because it's like, okay, there's only a limited window and an only certain way they can do this. And uh, of course, you can do a projection show on a night when it's pretty breezy, but you can't do a projection show with drones Mm -hmm. on a night that's breezy. And I was trying to get the information about what's your drop dead, so to speak. How high a wind can you do this in? And my source on advice of counsel did not answer. (laughs) So So basically if um, characters in flight, the aerophile 400 foot balloon can't go up, Mm. pretty sure this won't happen in those types of winds. Mm, I guess so. Now, the other thing that I'm interested with drones is when, if Universal uh, Orlando gets this show, where are they going to have takeoff for there? And when you look directly behind the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, there's a school. 
Mm-hmm. So there, I don't know whether or not they'll use the field or if they'll go back in behind Lake Marsha or what the idea will be out there. But unlike Disney property, they don't have a massive field right behind Universal Orlando and the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. It's literally a school and then homes. Yeah. And in fact, one of the other things that, that you have to take in consideration with, with drone shows is battery power. You know, how much Absolutely. time it takes to take off, to get into the air, to get into position, to fire up the lights, do the effect, then power down the lights and then return to base. I want to say for the holiday show in 2016, mm-hmm. they were using an area that was directly adjacent to Saratoga Springs. Because again, you know, there was going out over Lake Buena Vista, doing the show and coming back. Yeah. So it sounds feasible to be doing this at Dr. Phillips. But on the other hand, from a legalese point of view, yes. it, is that Sand Lake back there or Turkey Lake? The road that's, you know, right behind... That's Turkey Lake. Turkey Lake. Okay. I can't see the folks in Philadelphia Comcast signing off of, like, how many drones are flying over Turkey Lake? You know, so I I would imagine it's got to be someplace backstage, got to be clear line of sight, just like the holiday show at at Disney's. All right. uh, Long story short, folks, (laughs) uh, Dustin and I have some homework to do. We'll get back to you on this one. We have lots of questions and very few answers. But speaking of answers, we've been puzzling at in this brave new world where the Walt Disney Company swallows companies like 20th Century Fox and all of their IPs that one might use for a horror event. What happens now to Halloween Horror Night? And evidently it chugs forward just as it always has. Uh, We talked about how... We're seeing Stranger Things yep. come back, and uh, just today, folks from Universal Orlando revealed the first original IP for this year's Halloween Horror Nights, and so it's Nightingale's Blood Pit? Yeah, and uh, I love how they say, from the twisted minds of Universal Orlando's entertainment team. Yeah, really? Of okay. course. But yeah, mm-hmm. so guests will enter a all-new horrifying original story featuring Nightingale's, which is a grisly race of creatures in Nightingale's Blood Pit. So guests will be transported to ancient Rome where they must escape the gladiator arena as bloodthirsty Nightingales begin to feed on the dead and dying. But with nothing to protect them, they must make it out alive or become part of history. Wow. That looks yeah. like it will be uh, incorporating many, many uh, tricks of the trade. And I'm very interested to see what uh, what the creative team has in store, especially for a, an original content piece of Halloween Horror Nights. Given that we're setting this in a gladiator arena, mm-hmm. that suggests fairly big scale, fairly wide open spaces, which that to me says soundstage. I'm, I'm betting, I wonder if Nightingales will be one of the ones they do rather than say in the take like a, a, a parade float building and and retrofit it for a space for a maze. Yeah. And speaking of layouts of things and and how we're gonna fit things in, I'm hoping you folks are also aware of some other stuff around the web, including Josh Young's wonderful Theme Park University website. Josh does some some really great work over there. This past week, Josh is walking out some information about the possible layout of Universal Fantastic Worlds, the theme park that's being built up 
by the Orange County Convention Center. And a lot of people are kind of startled about the, the info that Josh is putting out there. You know, now, you, you read this, Dustin, right? Yeah, yeah. Spent some time over there, went through the details, went through mm-hmm. the... Um, I took what Josh put out there, and I also spent some time in the comments mm-hmm. and talking with friends and folks who are in the industry. And some of the stuff that he brought out there um, mm-hmm. will make you think. Yeah, now... Let's remember early on what we heard about Fantastic Worlds. It was going to be the first Universal Park that they've done that would feature the hub design. And that's a concept that debuted with Disneyland. You know, the notion is that you you come up through your main entrance street, your retail character, Main Street USA, you reach a hub point, and then springing off from the hub are various different lands. This info leaked three months ago, four months ago. Yep. I think we were all expecting, oh, okay, so we're going to see a Magic Kingdom type park. And that's really not what this is at all. Where the castle is in the, you know, sort of traditional theme park layout, we're going to have a universal giant, you know, lovely universal themed hotel. And then feeding off of the sort of Main Street corridor are going to be the jumping off points for various different lands, which at this point, we know we're going to feature some Nintendo elements. Again, there's been the rumors of the Universal Classic Monster Land and all that. What was your take on that? I think there there's a lot that will make folks think, especially, especially if you are a theme park fan, because mm-hmm. when you and we're sticking with Universal here, bringing Disney in is is very easy. But I think Universal has a really great example of how this works in mm-hmm. Universal Studios, Florida with Diagon Alley. Mm-hmm. When you walk into Diagon Alley, there is one entrance and one exit. But inside you have restaurants, you have attractions, you have retail, you have everything. But that Mm. is its own contained world. So what Josh is saying is that imagine Diagon Alley, but six different Diagon Alleys. Now, they're not Mm. all going to be as immersive as the Harry Potter franchise, but Mm. it will leave you basically stepping out of reality, going through a turnstile or however they set it up. The logistics are are where things get a little muddy. Mm -hmm. Very interested to see what's going to happen with that. But overall... The idea that you can set foot into different lands, that is very intriguing. The other thing I think leaps out about this idea is the notion that you have these pocket lands that you basically step out of a city walk-like space. I mean, you have your hotel in the distance as your anchor, but you're stepping out of a city walk type space Mm -hmm. to go into these individual themed lands, which... I know it sounds kind of screwy, but I have to tell you from talking with the folks when they were initially designing Hong Kong Disneyland in, in the late 90s, early in, into the early 2000s, one of the more interesting moments with that project was the realization that going with the classic Disneyland, you know, entering through Main Street USA, it's like, you know, we're on the completely other side of the world here. And it, at least in the States, there's a notion of, well, this is part of our country's past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a bunch of Imagineers who actually fought for the idea that's like, look, this isn't going to resonate with them at all. Yeah, they don't have small town USA. Yeah. So the the idea that they were initially pushing for 
this is a Disney park. Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, this, this sort of idealized small town USA, what if as you're walking down the street, you look up and that's the Darling's house from Peter Pan. And what's right next door to it? Well, that's the Banks's house from Mary Poppins. And what's right next to that? That's Madame Beaufamille's place from the Aristocats. I mean, this whole notion of these buildings that you know from the Disney films, they're there, but they're right side by side by side. And to make sure you understand what you're looking at in much the same way that, for example, when you're walking up Main Street at the Disney parks, they have that sort of audio undercurrent for example, when you pass the dentist's office, you can hear the, the you know the drilling and get you know, the pay ow, you know <laughs> that sort of thing. You were going to hear Jane and Michael upstairs. You were going to hear the darling children you know, talking about Peter Pan, and and it was going to be backed up at night with shadows against the windows. Mm-hmm. And the real departure here was that when you actually went into the individual stores and restaurants along this retail corridor. They were going to step away from the whole, you're in the general store idea. You'd be able to walk in and it's like, this is a Nike store. And it's like, yep. Or this is a Planet Hollywood. We're going to put all these international brands into the Main Street area because this was going to serve not only as this theme park's retail corridor entrance area, it was also going to be the Disney Springs at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Once you got to the top of Main Street, the hub and Rich Green Park was right ahead of you, and you could see the castle looming up over the trees. But it's only at this point that you finally got to the ticket booths and the bag check and the security. You don't have the train station. You don't have the entrance media stuff out there. It, you, you're deep into the park before you finally pull out your tickets and, and go through security. When I look at, at this model, is it's like, wow, this is what Disney was talking about doing yeah. as far back as 1995 and then chickened out. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, think about it. When you, when you got right down to it, Michael Eisner was still in charge of the company, still was feeling traumatized about what had happened in 1992 with Euro Disneyland, where they had overbuilt and they tried so many innovative ideas that in the end, he got nervous and basically defaulted to the old, the original Disneyland plan. Mm -hmm. Now you jump ahead to Shanghai Disneyland and you look at their Main Street USA. They don't have a Main Street USA. They have a Mickey Avenue. Kind of a bend on the idea of the Darling House next to the the Banks's house next to Madame Beaufield's place. You you now have a street where it's all the Disney characters. You have McDuck's department store and all that. But it's setting the stage. Like the idea is that it's all about telling a story. Yep. And that's where with Fantastic Worlds, I'm I'm very interested to see what will happen. My big thing is that you're looking at a lot of questions being asked where the realistic operation side is that everyone will get a magic band. Mm-hmm. You're walking around the outside and you're like, hey, I want to go into Super Nintendo World. And there's a turnstile and you tap it like you're tapping a fast pass machine and you walk through and you're in. So it could be as simple as that. It could completely change. Like during this, uh, if you read the article over on Theme Park University, Josh mm-hmm. says, you know, plans change. As of the writing of this, it's CityWalk 2.0, but mm-hmm. 
things can and will change. It's all a concept right now. Yeah. And remember, one of the reasons that you're seeing this weird sort of hybrid theme park hotel city walk idea is this is the thing that that Universal is building next to the Orange County Convention Center, where at the end of the day, when, you know, a big show is in town, whether it's, you know, a McDonald's or a, a, they've had Star Wars Celebration. Mm -hmm. The event that's happening in Chicago has been at the Orange County Convention Center. At the end of the day, 50, 60, 70,000 people walk out the door and need a place to eat and be entertained and that sort of thing. And to have a thing across the way where it's not only, you know, a city walk with all of these restaurants, but, you know, an, an amazing hotel that's right next to the convention center, plus the notion of these pocket worlds that you could visit. I mean, it, it's creating a park to service that audience as well as the folks who are coming to stay at the Universal, you know, Orlando Resort just down the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating Venn diagram that they're trying to get going here. And is somebody going to blink at some point and do what Eisner did? And it's like, okay, back to what we used to do. Yeah. If they do this, it's a big roll of the dice. Mm -hmm. It's asking people to embrace a different sort of vacation experience. I'm hoping that they do it. But just yesterday, we had the big Disney uh, investor day where over three and a half hours, they walked out their plan for Disney Plus, the company's subscription streaming service. And one of the things that really rocked people was the announcement that as part of this subscription st streaming service, people were going to be able to get every free Simpsons episode that had ever been presented. You know, the notion is the Simpsons are now part of Disney's world. And when we get back from our commercial break here, we're going to talk about what that means to the Universal Parks and Resorts. And we're back. But uh, before we get back here, the, in the, the, your fine tradition of digging around and finding interesting trademarks and that sort of thing, Dustin, you found another one. Universal Kids? Yeah, um... I still don't know what to think about it. It's it's mm -hmm. one of those things that when you stumble upon something, it's it's all about why. And mm -hmm. so Universal uh, City Studios has registered a trademark, actually two. So they have mm -hmm. one called Universal Kids, which is entertainment services uh, in the nature of production and distribution of film, television services, internet broadband services, um, everything under the sun. But then right next to that is something called Unikids. Mm -hmm. So it looks like they shortened Universal Kids to just Unikids. So mm -hmm. they have five different listings on here. Everything from toys, games, books, magazines, TV, satellites, internet broadband, entertainment services, everything you can imagine. And my question is, you know, is this something that will be competing with Disney Plus or are they going to create something around this because universal is owned by comcast a mm -hmm. large huge corporation that has many different facets and one of them is something so it's this time last year mm -hmm. we had comcast battling disney for 20th century fox in fact you know they're the ones who came in and i think disney initially put in a 54 million dollar bid which was mostly a stock swap and yep. comcast came in and 
and not only put up more money than Disney, but you know was offering all cash. And yep. they forced Disney to to up their bid to seventy one point four billion. So no, you're you're right. This is a company that looks seriously, or is still looking seriously at streaming. And in fact, it's it's going to be interesting to see where these names, these trademarks, wind up being used. Now, granted, we've also seen trademarks that haven't been used. There are many different things that they register that they float around and it just kind of gets put aside like Universal's great movie Escape Mm -hmm. that came out last year or Illumination Labs or many of those types of things. But in there was Big Fire Girl. So Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of time and running Universal is another great example. They have to register this during the process. So Mm -hmm. does this mean that we're going to be seeing something? Who knows? It was just one of those things came up and I wanted to share it with with our audience to keep them uh, informed. Back to The Simpsons now. And tomorrow on the 19th is the 32nd anniversary of the very first time The Simpsons appeared on television. This was, mind you, it was a a short that ran on the Tracy Ullman show, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't two years and change when the very first episode of The Simpsons television show debuted on Fox and they never looked back. And so the show launches in December of 1989 and is not initially a smash hit, but over time becomes that much more successful. Certainly, you know, opened the door for a lot of animated series to become viable on television. But on the Universal Park side of the thing, during the same window of time, we saw, you know, the Back to the Future ride opened in Florida, May of 1991. And in June, we had the Universal Hollywood version. That was one of my favorite attractions at the park. In fact, for a long time, I would argue with friends that I felt like Back to the Future, the ride in a lot of ways, was a better simulator attraction than Star Tours, largely because it was a much more intimate experience. There were only the eight of you in the the time-traveling family deluxe DeLorean. Mm -hmm. And I love that moment where they broke you down into just a group of eight and made you wait in Doc's office. (laughs) Just I loved looking at the stuff he had on his whiteboard and photos he'd put up and that sort of thing. And so it was a little disturbing to me that in... March of 2007, when Back to the Future, uh, the first version of Back to the Future, the ride, closed at Universal Studios Florida. And it's like, why would you close this great ride? Mm -hmm. And it was not a week later that Florida Today released the news that a Simpsons-themed attraction was in the works to replace Back to the Future, the ride. And what they reported at the time is that this project was part of a $120 $120 million upgrade project for the, the parks, Universal Parks and Resorts had in the works for 2008. You gotta love the folks at Florida Today because in the middle of this article, they noted that one of the ways they found this out is they, they had come across an SEC filing, Security and Exchange Commission. As they dug down into what MCA Recreation was going to be spending over the next two years, the capital expenditures, there was a line in there that said they were they would be spending this money on intellectual property rights. So we've got a $120 million figure. That must be what Universal is paying 20th Century Fox for the theme park rights to The Simpsons. And it's like, well, no. Because <laughs> it turns out, again, this, this story breaks April of 2007. In May of 2007, the Universal City Development Partners 
through Warner Brothers Consumer Products, they acquired the theme park license to the Harry Potter books and films. So actually, this $120 million was evidently split across two properties, The Simpsons and Harry Potter, all basically in the same window of time. Subsection 6.1 of this license agreement lists the initial terms of the deal, which were slated to run through July 1st, 2018. This was then followed by one renewal term, which was slated to run through July 2023, and then a second and final renewal term, which ran was supposed to run through July 1st of 2028. So that's a 20-year deal for the theme park rights to Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Now remember that you know they made that deal for just the one park. At this point, there was no diagonality, there was no Hogwarts. When they decided after the huge success of The Wizarding World in 2010, they went back to Warner's and renegotiated the deal, allowing for the creation of Diagon Alley, allowing for the creation of Hollywood's version of The Wizarding World, and likewise Japan. But they extended the original deal for 20 years. So evidently right now we're talking about Universal basically has the theme park rights to Harry Potter through, let's say, 2048-2050. Now, if you understand that, and you understand on the success of opening the Simpsons ride in, in both California and Florida within a week, it was like May 2008? Yeah, so we got, yeah, Universal Studios Florida open. Soft opening mm -hmm. date was April 23rd, 2008, with the official opening May 15th. And then Universal Studios Hollywood was May 19th of 2008. Same situation. You have a hit attraction. You have Universal deciding to double down. So in Florida, they build Fast Food Boulevard, which opens, I want to say, in 2012. No, it should be 2013. And then you have the Springfield, USA the sort of supersized version of uh, Fast Food Boulevard that opens at Universal Studios Hollywood, mm -hmm. and that opens in 2015. But here's the thing. You're putting a lot of money in the ground, steel, concrete, that sort of thing, and you want to be able to make that money back. So supposedly they negotiate a 20-year extension. So we're looking at Universal holding the Simpsons theme park rights for as far out as 2048, 2050. However, it's only for... The Simpsons is strictly a North America deal. Mm -hmm. For me, it's very, very telling that, uh, for example, when Universal Singapore opens up in May of 2011, mm -hmm. that's the park that opened with Transformers Attraction. That's the one that has Far, Far Away. You know, they, they double down on Shrek, you know, the DreamWorks properties. They have the Madagascar area. At no time, though, do you get the Simpsons attraction. You don't get a Springfield. You don't get a Krusty Burger. The Back to the Future ride at Universal Japan doesn't actually close till May of 2016. So mm -hmm. you think, okay, now, finally, this is where the Simpsons come in. And it's like, no. No, what ends up going in in place April of 2017 is a Despicable Me Minion Mayhem. Supposedly, it wasn't just that they didn't have the rights outside of the United States. I mean, 
Uh, Mike Rice, uh, who wrote for The Simpsons for 29 seasons and and wrote a a great book, by the way. You have to check this out, folks. It's called Springfield Confidential Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies about a lifetime of writing for The Simpsons. He talks about in the book how they've made numerous attempts to launch The Simpsons for the Japanese television market, and it's failed every time. This direct quote from the book here. It's like, it drives some people at The Simpsons crazy that the Japanese don't watch our show. We cannot get them interested. Japan is the biggest market in the world that we haven't yet conquered. I think, why do you care? We're not Alexander the Great. We're just a cartoon show. Yeah. If you pivot and look at the plans for Universal Beijing, eerie parallels in a lot of ways, to what Josh was talking about. I mean, for example, the giant hotel, mm-hmm. though this looms over the entrance rather than to the way back of the park. But if you walk through the IPs that they're building this park around, you enter through sort of the standard Hollywood-themed plaza. And again, your sort of Main Street, USA, retail corridor only themed around you know, Hollywood icons. You then get a Harry Potter-themed area, Hogsmeade Village. So when they cut that deal, they made sure they could walk it around the world. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you've got a Transformers-themed area. In fact, as part of the Transformers area, they have a giant coaster looming up out of it that is an exact duplicate of the Incredible Hulk coaster okay. from Islands Adventure. But again, not because they, they don't have the Marvel so theme rights. for. A- so it's not Marvel. It's uh, it's going to be in the Transformers era. That's interesting. There you go. At the same time, you've got a Waterworld-themed stunt show, which that Kevin Costner film lost money for the company, but Universal has never lost money on building a Waterworld stunt show. For some odd reason, it is one of the more popular things they put into the parks. They, they, you know, people line up for hours. They have a Jurassic World-themed area, and then a Minion-themed area, and a Kung Fu Panda-themed area. But again, no Simpsons. Yeah. What we're facing right now is kind of the same situation that's about to happen here in the States. I mean, we have the amazing adventures of Spider-Man at Islands Adventure. Opened in May of 1999, was a hit right out of the box. They did that amazing update in uh, the late winter, early spring of 2012 when they upgraded all of the animation and the attraction and switched over to the 4K projectors. But We've got that in Orlando, and right now, in California, at California Adventure, they are building inside of the old It's Tough to Be a Bug Theater, mm-hmm. a Spider-Man web shooter attraction, a Disney version, and 3,000 Miles Away is the Amazing Adventure of Spider-Man at Islands of Adventure. So Universal is going to have the stateside North America lock down the Simpsons, and again, we're conceivably talking about them holding onto the rights as far out as 2050. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you look at Hong Kong, if you look at Beijing, these are places where Disney can do something with The Simpsons. And in fact, I know they're eyeballing Beijing because back in May of 2016, the world's first Simpsons store, and I'm not talking about a theme park store, a full-blown store, opened in the fashionable Shanli Tong district in Beijing. Uh, it was a collaboration between 20th Century Fox Consumer Products, Gracie Films, and the Chinese clothing brand, Her Chain. So you gotta wonder, especially when you think about Hong Kong Disneyland, mm-hmm. literally right across the entrance from the their Magic Kingdom, 
is the expansion pad for park number two. Yep. And, you know, we've already been hearing talk about where's the next Avatar going? You know, where's the next Pandora going? So wouldn't it be fascinating if that park comes out of the gate and it has two really strong Fox properties, Avatar and doing their own version mm-hmm. of The Simpsons? I mean, everybody knows the version of the Simpsons ride that we got, where you're tooling around Krusty Land being ch- pursued by Sideshow Bob. But the original story that they pitched was that you weren't going to Krusty Land. You were on a field trip with Bart. Yep. And you were going to the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant. What ended up happening while you were at the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant is that Homer saw Bart come through the door with his friends and in trying to hide, knocked over cans of nuclear waste. (laughs) And now everybody in the plant begins to mutate into monsters. And so you have to escape. And so you basically run back to the bus that you took to the field trip and Mm -hmm. you're now driving through Springfield. You know, so it's this treehouse of horror inspired adventure. And it had one moment I particularly loved. Do you know the the Rainier Wolfcastle character from the show, the sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger clone? At one moment, you're you're rolling through the streets of Springfield, and Rainier, in full Terminator gear, rolls up next to you in a jeep, and he's zooming along next to the bus, and you're looking at the window of him, and he he turns his head and reaches his hands and says, "Come with me if you want to live." And what ends up happening is as he's saying that you drive into a tunnel and he drives into the side of the tunnel and his Jeep explodes and Bart, who's Bart, who's driving the bus at this point, because Otto has been eaten. There's like a one, two beat and he looks over his shoulder and basically says, all in all, it's probably a good thing we didn't go with him. <laughs> well, one of the reasons why we, we brought that up was because... Mm. During our pregame, we were talking about the Halloween Horror Nights, the announcement that came out. And my question Mm -hmm. was, why hasn't The Simpsons, with their Treehouse of Horror franchises and knowing that in the first, you know, 20 years of The Simpsons, Treehouse Mm -hmm. of Horror was always, if not the most viewed uh, episode, it was in the top five. Mm -hmm. Why they had never done the sensical thing of combining the two franchises for the halloween event but now it kind of makes sense though everyone agreed it was a wonderful script it was it was very fun in fact i remember talking with mike west the former imaginary who actually ended up at universal creative and wrote hurt on the simpsons attraction what ended up happening with the simpsons ride is that as they were working on it as they were finaling the ride film there was a writer's strike in hollywood so yeah. Uh, suddenly a lot of the people who worked in The Simpsons had plenty of time on their hands. And so they began plussing the script and then plussing the script. And every time Mike would go to meet with them again, there were new gags in the script. Mm -hmm. And eventually Mike was like, look, guys, nothing personal. I love everything you're doing here, but we actually have to make this. It was not going to be hand-drawn. It was going to be CG on the ride to make it that much more different and allow for that much more hyper detail. The Simpsons ride actually features a very big chunk of Disney right now. Yeah. There's, there's a significant part from it's a small world to um, oh, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going through the ride in my head right now. Cause it's that awesome. The 
Captain Dinosaur's Boat Ride. Yeah, they've got pirates. They don't just have pirates. First of all, you have Sideshow Bob doing the Miss Curtain thing that had just recently been added to the Disney theme parks. Because remember that when they added Jack Sparrow, they also put Davy Jones in and they did him on a Miss Curtain. So that had literally happened a year or so before the Simpsons ride opened. So they were doing the nod on that. But when you get to the actual Captain Dinosaur portion of the ride, look beyond Margin and Homer in the boat at some point, and you'll realize that you're basically going backwards through the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's the exact same sets. A lot of the movement that the dinosaurs are doing are, are the same stuff that the animatronics do in Pirates. Mm -hmm. The way they cover is you're going backwards through the ride. You get some of the exact same layout, the same buildings. It's really not going to be all that big a deal to have a Disney versions of The Simpsons because we've already seen it. (laughs) We've seen it twice. We've seen it um, in season six, episode four. Oh, Uh, yeah. And so when we first started talking about The Simpsons and theme parks, I had to go back and rewatch this. So... Mm -hmm. There are some great tips of the hat to the theme park industry from um, being helicoptered in and having the the pilots say, welcome to Itchy and Scratchy Land, where nothing can possibly go wrong. That's the first thing that's ever gone wrong. And then Mm. you walk up and they have all the the attractions that aren't uh, operating. And it's the Head Basher, Bloodbath, the Mangler, and the Nurses Station. This episode, folks, is called Itchy and Scratchy Land and is well worth watching. You got to... Do frame stops just for the backgrounds that are lovely Main Street USAs. And this aired in October of 1994, which was just after Disney, as the Euro Disneyland project was teetering on the brink just six months earlier, they'd cut a deal with the banks to keep the place open. That pretty much does it for this week, folks. But Dustin, if they can't wait till we get back with our next show here, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm over at StepsToMagic.com, trip planning, Disney, Universal, all the, the fun stuff. I tell people that I read about cupcakes for a living, so it's it's good times. If anyone has any questions about Universal, especially trip planning with everything changing over the next couple of years, please feel free to you know head over to the website, flip me a note. I always love doing uh, deep dives into things that will help people's uh, vacation um, that much more smooth and memorable. And on my side of the fence, we got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got Marvelous Disney, the show I do with Aaron Adams. We have Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, who is right now in Chicago at Star Wars Celebration. In fact, they just released a trailer for Rise of the Skywalkers. So it's going to be interesting to see what he has to talk about when he gets back. We have fine-tuning with Drew Taylor, and we also have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. Dustin and I will be back in a future episode. So till that pops up, you folks take care. It's been groovy having you hang with us for the Universal Joint. Tune in again for this and other great podcasts found on the Jim Hill Media Network. <laughs>